everyone. Welcome to That's Absurd. Please elaborate. I'm Trace Dominguez. And I'm Julian Huguet. And on this episode, uh, why did I talk so funny? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on this episode, everybody's Italian. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to That's Absurd. Please elaborate. Why don't we change up the show a little bit and do the whole thing in Italian for our Italian audience? They'll love all- that. They'll, I'm sure everybody. If there's will love one it. thing people love, it's you imitating their accent. <laughs> That's for sure. I believe it. Okay. Uh, strange voices aside, uh, we are you know your regular two host duo of this show where we dive into absurd questions, where we try and actually discover uh, what the science would have to say about it. Something, you know underpinned by real research or at least the best research that we can do in our off time between recordings this week both of our questions are user submitted and i'm really looking forward to getting into those but before we do we usually kick off episodes that are just trace and i with some science news that's caught our eye trace you actually said you have a story that you were looking at that you wanted to share this week i do i do what's up i'm a star trek fan i am a i am a trekkie I feel like that goes without saying. So in late 2020, there was a guy named Harold White, and he was the director of the nonprofit Limitless Space Institute. And he had all of his data uh, that had been generated by a recent experiment. Uh, He was working with DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, basically the closest thing we have to like a Tony Starkian system in the United States these days. And they said... The the data indicated that there was energy between these two plates. And if you put microscopic metal plates in a vacuum and put them close together, you get what's called Casimir cavities. Yeah. 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 Th- this sounds vaguely familiar, right? It's yeah. like energy from virtual particles or something that pops into existence between the plates. Is like yeah. the oversimplified explanation, I'm sure. You, you got it exactly right. It's known as negative vacuum energy density. It's a quantum mechanics phenomenon. It's also known as the Casimir effect. Um, it essentially causes energy to appear from nothing. Um, and when we look at it mathematically, uh, so if you did an experiment where you could have mathematically, purely with math, show a one micron sphere inside of a four micron cylinder under the same conditions that they had in this experiment, you would generate a warp bubble. I had a feeling that's where this was going. That's where I've heard Casimir effect before. It's always in relation to warp drives. Yes. And so this is yet another example, which I thought was very cool, uh, about how the warp system could maybe not defy the laws of physics as much as we thought maybe it could at some point. Yeah, that's the whole premise behind them, right? Is like, okay, if you can't go past the speed of light, if locally you could somehow like manipulate space so the space you're in is like traveling fast. something crazy yes, like that right that's exactly correct the space yes. you're in is like moving faster than the speed of light but you locally are not violating general relativity that sort of that's, thing that is how star trek hand wavy explains going faster than the speed of light so as we all know the speed of light well maybe we don't all know but if you don't know the speed of light is this, essentially the speed limit of the universe and there's no way to go faster than that and even approaching that requires infinite amounts of energy based on what we know about physics We could be wrong, but it doesn't seem like we are based on what we've seen in the universe. And so 
to go faster than the speed of light is essentially impossible with the tech that we know now. And so people are trying to figure out, is there a way to do it otherwise? And there's a guy, and he's a Mexican theoretical physicist and a Star Trek enthusiast, of course. His name is Miguel Acubiere. And he uh, wrote a paper in the mid-90s about this. And so now people have been trying to figure it out. And they think, okay, yes, this might be a thing you could build. They didn't build it for this experiment, but the data showed some interesting stuff. I think my favorite thing about the article, which I read in Popular Mechanics, is, is, uh, quote, if you collided with something on your path, it would almost certainly be catastrophic. (laughs) (laughs) So don't try this at home is what I'm hearing. If you were going the speed of light or faster and hit something, it would be bad, Mm. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then it would have to enter your warp bubble. Well, so essentially, if you think of it like... So space-time is curved, uh, and curved because of gravity. So if you think of it as, like, waves, and you're surfing on space. So they're not... Is, the bubble is sort of protecting you and making sure that you're surfing on sp- on that that curved space-time. But it's not actually, like, a bubble, like, like you can pop it. It's not you know? a barrier. It's just, yeah, it's more just like, this is a region around mm. which uh, you can do crazy physics things anyway it's very complicated and kind of fun but it's a neat article and you could read it if you have even a passing understanding and and really enjoy it so i highly recommend looking it up always excited for any sort of like warp drive news that's one of those (laughs) things i'm like glad to hear somebody out there still tinkering away on that you know but can i tell you something i had a premonition i swear i'm not making this up yesterday okay that star trek was going to come up today what? Yes. No way. I'm serious. I was worried that when Star Trek came up, I would have to share my most embarrassing <gasps> secret as now a Now you have to. You have to now. You have to share it. I you fe- have to share it. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I feel like this is one of the things I would share in like two truths and a lie because it would totally like catch everybody out. I swear this is the truth though. I have never seen a full episode of Star Trek. The okay, disappointment you, this, on this your This episode face. is over. This episode, the show, the show is over. I seriously was thinking about this yesterday. I swear. I was like, at some point in a tape recording, Star Trek is going to come up and people are going to make references to it. And I'm not going to be able to hang. And then my horrible secret will come out. But Julian, it's true. you're going to come over to my house and we are going to watch an episode of Star Trek. You're going to get the the onesies ready, the jumpsuits and the popcorn. I don't have any jumpsuits. Right. Um, look, I full. love Star Trek. I We can do the full experience. We can get some, you know, some ale, whatever. I'm not a great Trekkie, so Earl I don't Grey know. Earl Grey hot. I mean, yes, we can get some Earl Grey hot for sure. And then maybe put a little whiskey in it because we don't have synthahol in this <laughs> See, that's I don't fine. know that reference. I, that, it's okay. You, you lost don't have me. to. You don't have to know the reference. It's fine. Okay. So either way, Star Trek is great, and you should watch it. It's about hope for the future, and we can watch it on the weekend sometime. Oh, that's good. I need some of that right now. But I feel like everybody else is like, we're going to try and build the James Webb Space Telescope or whatever, and then somebody's like, okay, I'm just going to see if we can get the whole warp drive thing to work <laughs> this time. So I'll be back in 10 years. 
Yeah, we'll I'll call you back. I'll, I'll uh, give you a little we'll update. Figure this out. <laughs> That's my favorite thing. Uh, one of my favorite things about science is people are like, well, science does this. And I'm like, no, science does whatever idiosyncratic, esoteric thing that some dude somewhere or some woman somewhere is like, I'm really into this. Yeah. <laughs> Let me figure it science, out. A lot, science does whatever the grant funding allows. <laughs> Also true. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Way to way to bring us down I'm into sorry, the reality. Sorry. <laughs> Listen though, you know DARPA is interested in it because a warp drive would be like game changing for national defense and all sorts of like U.S. government interest uh, yeah. uh, needs. I'm sure. So yeah. I'm sure DARPA's like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, keep working on it. Here's a little something to 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 keep you going. Speaking of government, have you ever heard of government cheese? But why can I eat cheese? This is my transition, Julian. I think it worked. Seamless. I think it worked. Thank you for giving me the heads up too that we were going (laughs) to transition to my topic. (laughs) Julian, you got a question this week, Uh, actually from one of our Spotify listeners, which is excellent. J Cole zero zero one. Yes. Can you read, please? their question i would be happy to so j cole 001 says why can you eat mold in cheese but not in or on any other food and then they also included love your show smiley face emoji with sunglasses to let them to let Excellent. us know that they're a cool person so i appreciate they that. are and a they cool are. person they must thank be. you uh, thank you for submitting that question yes I, I i'm also by the way side note pretty certain that the user handle is 001 because they spelled mold the british way so i'm pretty convinced this is a secret agent who uh <laughs> in their off time on a stakeout is listening to the podcast which great opportunity to do that really yes uh okay and probably sitting there with their snacks that they've had yeah. for a while in their aston martin spy car and yeah. maybe they're starting to get a little moldy and they're just like Oof, and they're like what if can i, eat, I this? eat this or not like will blofelt and specter get away with their evil plan if i get <laughs> sick because i eat these moldy pistachios do you expect me to eat mold? <laughs> yes, Mr. Bond, and then I expect you to die. <laughs> yes, I, exactly. I assume that's exactly what's happening and why they submitted this question, and I think I'm not far off. So, let's get into it. Uh, this is, I, I don't think it's an absurd question like many of the ones we've tackled in the past, but it is one that, it's one of those that I've wondered and gone like, yeah, why? And then I never looked into it. And I think, yeah. therefore, also a perfect opportunity to, uh, you know, research and share on the show. So uh, I think the long story short, the easiest way of kind of conceptualizing this is mold is a type of fungus. Right. Mm-hmm. And just like fungi that you're more familiar with culinarily. Right. Like you can eat some mushrooms and others will kill you. Like yeah. that's that's kind of the the whole overarching thing of it. But to specifically answer, though, why like on cheese, you can eat it and not on other foods. Well, a important part of the manufacturing process of several different types of cheese is actually subjecting it to mold. So certain cheeses like uh, Gorgonzola, Stilton, Brie, Rockfort, Blue, Camembert, these are made. I'm, I'm going to vote yes to several of those, but no to Brie and no to Blue. No like to them. Brie? I don't like those. Um. No. Wow. <laughs> you know how you felt when I confessed I wasn't 
into Star Trek. Yeah. That's how I feel knowing that you're not into brie. Why? What's wrong? Brie? I don't. It tastes like dirt. Brie. I don't don't like it. It's. uh, I I can't. I don't know how to hear any more about you not liking brie. This is like upsetting me. I can't get my words out. (laughs) I'm sorry, buddy. Ah, Okay. I'm going to pretend you didn't say that and move on. So these delicious, wonderful cheeses. Okay. That are loved by everybody. Uh, they are made because a specific type of fungus, you know, actually starts gobbling down on like, you know, the, the fresh little lump of cheese starts working away on it. And the byproduct is the texture that you know of the cheese. But for cheeses like brie, that outside white crusty Ugh. bit, that that is mold. Oh, see, this is why I don't want to eat it. (laughs) Okay, but here's the thing, is I (laughs) think you need a more nuanced perspective on mold, right? Oh, maybe. Mold is one of those words I think is just, as soon as you hear it, you're grossed out, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. The other one, I'm so sorry, listeners, but the other one that everybody brings up all the time is moist, right? Moist. Uh, For me, okay, by the way, side note, I think the worst word in the English language is nubile. Ugh, I hate Why? that word. Ugh. Why do you hate it? it I could tell that you hated it just by how you said it. Both how it sounds and because like the meaning is weird. Right? Can I say it? Ugh, go ahead. Nubile. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> ooh, nubile is like, ooh, just old enough for like, you know, a, adult sexy oh, time. No. Yeah. Yeah. Right? The concept is disgusting. Oh, no, I really don't like Thank it. You. I okay. thought before I thought it was something funny, but ew, that's no, that's not great. No, I hate the word nubile. Anyway, I feel like mold is kind of like that for most people. Just your knee-jerk reaction when you hear mold is gross. And that's fair, right? Yeah. But a lot of people aren't aware that mold is an integral part of making these cheeses. It's also uh, in other common foods, and you might not even realize it. For example, you know salami? Yeah, I know it, and I love it. Okay. Especially when I get it in its log form, and I can just bite the log. And Okay. When I would go to scout camp, I would just leave the salami log in my hat and wrap it up and then, like, take it with me and then eat it whenever I had and needed a snack, and it was great. Okay. Well, you know the white <laughs> rind around your salami? Yeah. That's mold. Ah! Yeah. You ruined it! No, no, no! change your perspective i'm telling you that is mold and it actually serves a very important purpose right because first of all the thing you have to know is at the microbe scale it's a knife fight right like everything is trying to kill everything else down at the at the tiny microscopic level and mold is no exception right So uh, the salami that is coated with this mold exterior is actually protected by that mold from bacteria that would decompose the salami. So that's why it stays like cured and edible, even if you just leave it out. It's Hmm. it's protected by the mold. If, say, you left it in an outdoor research hat (laughs) for a week and just snacked on it the the whole time. In the summertime. In the hot, broiling was, summer in Michigan. Totally, and it was totally fine to do that. Yes. 
I can thank I can thank mold. That's because of the mold exterior. That's right. Huh. You're welcome. Huh. So yeah, I know who who <laughs> would have thought. But yeah, so that mold is fine. It's in, it's actually intentionally a, the the white rind on the outside of brie. Same thing. It's part wow. of how brie gets its texture. Uh, the mold on salami is part of that um, curing process as well for the dried meat. So yeah, that's that particular species, these species of mold are just fine. Other ones, though, are harmful. But let's back up a little bit and talk about that microscopic knife fight that we've got going on, right? Yeah. So a lot of these cheeses that are made with mold, uh, the species involved, like for Roquefort, is Penicillium Roqueforti, right? Or another one that is used in cheese, Penicillium Glaucum, right? Does that genus name sound familiar? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, because penicillin, Louis Pasteur. Right. Uh, bread, you yeah. know, all those things. Yeah. So penicillin, right, was discovered in the 1920s. I think it was 1928 by Ian Fleming. And it was the result. <laughs> Ian Fleming. Wait, no, not Ian Fleming. That's Ian the, Fleming. I'm back to James Bond. Why are you wait, back to James? Wait. It was discovered in 1928 no, no. by Ian Fleming. Alexander Fleming. Thank you. <laughs> Well, that's unfortunate. That was good, though. There goes my credibility. No, sorry. <laughs> Alexander Fleming uh, w- uh, discovered penicillin. Take that! An infection of the human body. <laughs> like microscopic Blofeld and Spectre. The, the mold who loved me. <laughs> Anyway, so Alexander <laughs> Fleming, who oh, as far as I know has no relation to Ian Fleming, but now I'm oh, going to look it up. Let me hope wait, that they are wait, related somehow. Wait, are they family tree DNA? Hold on, I'm looking it up right now. Because it, it turns out, you know, like I was looking up the other day, um, there was a famous biologist uh, in like the 1950s named Julian Huxley. And I'm like, Huxley, where have I heard that name? And he is like the brother of Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World. <laughs> so it, yeah. it's not it's not uncommon. But anyway. <laughs> but wait. What? <laughs> but the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association has an amazing article by Jonathan Sackier that has this opener. In London, blue plaques adorn numerous buildings. That's true. When I lived there, I used to like to read them. Two captured my imagination. One adorning St. Mary's Hospital proudly claims that Alexander Fleming in 1928, two floors above, discovered penicillin. Another in 22 Ebury Street, where Ian Fleming, James Bond's creator, spent many years. (laughs) The two Flemings, one wrote of saving lives, another of ending them. Nice. Nice. This, this this author saw a connection yeah. and he went for it. And I respect that. He went that. for it. Maybe he made the exact same mistake, right? Maybe he was talking about penicillin. He was like, yeah, discovered by Ian Fleming. And somebody in the room went, uh, hold on. Excuse me, sir. I think you met Alexander Fleming. <laughs> <laughs> so Alexander Fleming discovered uh, penicillin quite by accident, right? He apparently had a bunch of petri dishes he was growing uh streptococcus bacteria and he left them in like a a bath 
of some uh, sterilizing agent over the holiday. And when he came back, one of the plates that was out of the bath had a mold spore settle on it and start growing. And Alexander Fleming noticed that around the mold spore, there was no bacteria, right? Hmm. And that's because the mold uh, created what we now know as penicillin. So it's just a natural byproduct of this fungus. And at the microorganism level, this sort of thing happens all the time. In fact, many of our antibiotics are synthesized using bacteria or fungi because they use it to outcompete each other, right? Oh, so it's like a bacterial microbial arms race. Exactly. Which and is penicillin was like one of the early super weapons. Yeah, well, the first that we what discovered. That we knew about. Yeah. yeah, and we've discovered many more since then. And we've been able to synthesize them, but the ones that we found early on were all just products of these microbes that make this thing because it is toxic to other competing microbes in their environment. So if you kill hmm. them off, you don't have to fight them for your food. You get all the food and the nutrients and the good stuff, right? Nice. So uh, because of that, though, other molds are toxic to humans and you can't eat them like mold yeah. that you find on your bread uh, is is bad. Uh, Rhizopus stolonifer. That's bad. That's bad mold. I shouldn't just like can I just cut it off and eat the rest of the bread? No. Oh. So the problem is uh, when you see mold on stuff, that's just the exterior of the fungi. But when fungi <gasps> starts growing in food, it spreads out like a root system, right? Like threads. It goes Ugh. through it and it's pulling nutrients from all throughout the food and it's dumping toxins, mycotoxins specifically, back into the surrounding area that, you know, they metabolize as they consume the food. And so... When you see mold on the exterior, if it's a particularly if it's like a soft, moist kind of food, uh, yeah. like a like a softer fruit, like a peach or something, you yeah. don't want to eat that because there's likely toxins inside the fruit that will make you sick or could make oh, you sick. No. It's better safe than sorry. You know, there's so many yeah. species of of fungi. Who knows really what what has settled on your food, but. It's not a good idea to just, you know, risk it for the biscuit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's a good. It should be on a T-shirt. Okay. So uh, of particular concern is uh, what are called mycotoxins, specifically that are aflatoxins. Uh, A-F-L-A toxins. Aflatoxins. It kind of sounds like aflac, but it's not. It's aflatoxins. (laughs) These toxins are made by two species of fungus in the Aspergillus genus, right? Mm -hmm. One of them is Aspergillus uh, flavum, which is where aflatoxin comes from. So these are, uh, they attack like certain kinds of uh, ground nuts, tree nuts, Corn, rice, figs, dried foods, spices, right? They they can get in a lot of different places. They are particularly a problem in uh, hot, humid environments, right? So like hmm. closer to the equator in the tropics and stuff like that. And the problem with mycotoxins in general is, you know, they can actually get into the food and start, you know, uh, contaminating it when the food is growing, when the food is in storage, <gasps> and they can survive the processing process. And so when they get, you know, to your shelf, they can still be unsafe to eat. 
right? Wow. So they, the different, you know, government organizations, and the WHO and USDA, they have to the monitor. band. I don't, <laughs> yes, the WHO. The Pete in Townsend playing sold out concerts is there keeping you safe from mold. Uh, no, the WHO it is a teenage wasteland. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, yeah, they, they have to monitor the levels of aflatoxins in uh, food before it gets processed and, and make sure that, you know, you're not actually harvesting contaminated food that could go on and make people sick. Or even huh. if it's in uh, agriculture feed, like if the toxins are in uh, food that is fed to cows, the cows can metabolize it, but still produce a toxic compound. And if you drink milk from these cows, you can still get sick. What? Yeah. Like and, second and third order effects from these, from just a, a simple mold. Yeah, exactly. And aflatoxins are uh, particularly harmful to the liver, which makes sense because the liver is what, when you eat something, right, the blood from mm-hmm. your intestines then gets filtered through the liver and the liver breaks down toxic stuff. And yeah. if you, um, you know, have too high a level of these aflatoxins in your food, uh, you can get like acute onset liver problems and end up dying. And it's a big problem, particularly in poorer nations closer to the equator like Kenya. Yeah. Uh, here's the downer part, because this always has to come when we talk about anything like this, is that climate change is expected to spread uh, mm. these molds that make aflatoxins into areas where they used to not be a problem, like Europe, right? As, as these areas get hotter and more humid, as climate change changes, you know, the global world weather patterns and everything, uh, yeah, these molds are going to be more survivable in regions where they previously couldn't actually survive. Wow. So that's something to look forward to. Woohoo! Yay! But yeah, aflatoxins are same exact idea. They're um, like these secondary metabolites is what they're called. And they're things that are made specifically to give the mold a competitive edge over other microorganisms. Uh, And then the foods that are particularly uh, ripe for making aflatoxins are foods that are high in sugars like glucose and fructose because Mm. when the mold break down these sugars the resulting uh, molecules are like the first early steps to eventually making aflatoxins so yeah if you've got like moldy grains moldy corn that sort of thing it could be this aspergillus fungus that's making something really bad for you and there there are more categories of Mycotoxins. I just picked uh, aflatoxin because that seems to be the one that is sort of the biggest cause for concern and has been studied the most. But there's okratoxins, and those are made by other species of aspergillus, as well as uh, species in the penicillium genus, right? So Hmm. just because it's a penicillium um, fungus, a mold, like used in the the Rockford cheese, doesn't mean it's benign. It could still be uh, dangerous. And uh, okratoxin A is particularly bad for your kidneys. Uh, Hmm. A lot of these, by the way, are also connected to uh, causing cancer. So... That's that's not that's great. not good. No, let's it's not, not do great. that. Or uh, or even um, being toxic to your DNA. Uh, Patulin is another mycotoxin. Also Wait, made what? Becca. What? You can have a mold that makes a toxin that messes with my DNA. Damages your DNA. Yeah. What? Yeah. How? So, so there's another you know subcategory of mycotoxins. Uh, pat- patulin. I hope I'm saying that right. 
who knows, uh, that's also made by molds in Aspergillus and Penicillium uh, uh, genii, genuses? Anyway. Genesis, Sega Genesis. Genesis. Yeah, and so um, it's it's not clear if they uh, trigger, you know, uh, cancer if they're carcinogenic in humans, but they are considered to be genotoxic, so they do affect your DNA, your genome. Wow. Uh, which is also to say a lot of mycotoxins, particularly bad news for, like, a developing fetus. Mm, yeah, bad. Yeah, that sort of thing. So, again, to, to kind of round all this up and get back to the entire question in the first place... Which was, of course, uh, why can I eat moldy cheese but not other moldy things? Yeah, it just depends on the type of uh, mold that is growing on this food source. Certain molds prefer certain types of foods, and uh, some of them are totally benign and fine to eat, like the molds that we use to make cheeses. And some of them uh, could destroy your liver or kidneys and kill you pretty quickly, so don't, don't eat those. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the recommendation I found, like, from the USDA, they kind of draw a dividing line. Like, if it's a hard cheese, like, something that's difficult for those little tendrils to penetrate, uh, you can probably just scrape it off and, like, kind of cut a cubic inch out around it, you know, like, in each direction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and be fine. But if it's something that's higher in moisture and, like, mm-hmm, less mm-hmm. dense and easier for the, the fungus to penetrate through... Like maybe like a disgusting like brie that you just would bring to like a brunch. What I you brie hater, you absolute (laughs) philistine. Uh, Yes, fine. So yeah, if if there's a different kind of mold growing on old brie on the actual cheese itself, you probably don't want to eat that. Yeah, the mold on the outside is fine, but the mold that's growing on it now from like being inside your fridge for 6 months or whatever, that that's that's not good. Don't 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 eat that. Don't eat that. Try not to do that. So it's almost yeah. like the premise of the question, even though I agree with J Cole 001's premise, which is you can eat cheese because cheese is mold. Mm-hmm. And so I can just cut the bad mold and eat the rest of it. But apparently not as clear-cut as we thought. No. So I hope I've given you kind of a, a different perspective on mold, right? Some of yeah. it is fine or even great. Thank you, penicillin. Uh, Yay! You've been literally life-saving. But on the other hand, some of it, not not so great. And you probably shouldn't just put it in your body. Well, thanks, Julian. That was really interesting. And thank you, J. Cole 001 for asking that question on Spotify. You can always ask questions. There's a little poll on the Spotify for those listeners. Otherwise, there's a link in the show notes. You can always ask a question. But let's take a quick break, and then I can come to my question. If you've turned into this... Turned into it? You've turned into one. You've turned into a science comedy podcast. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm a podcast. Am I going to be late to work? If you're tuned into this science and comedy podcast, chances are that you are someone who loves learning and having a blast while doing it. If it wasn't clear, Trace and I are the same way. We thrive on learning new things because it not only enriches our lives, helps us learn new skills, but also makes us really cool at parties. Is that what we are at parties? Are we? We are, right? We're cool. I mean, when you're at my house and I'm at your house, definitely. But like, other houses. Anyway, (laughs) this is all to say... 
I am super excited about our new sponsor, Brilliant. Yay! Can I kind of get a little, like, you know, in my feels for a second? Oh, yeah, get those feels. Elaborate, please. Hey, I see what you did there. I am exactly the kind of person that Brilliant was made for. I have always been interested in math, physics, computer science. When I had the chance to study these things in college years ago, I was also really intimidated by them. Yeah. And I avoided taking these classes. And honestly, I regret it. I'm going back now. I'm taking classes at my local community college. I'm loving it. Yeah. But with a family and work, traditional classes like that, I'm finding them really hard to actually fit into my life. So I was really excited when you told me that Brilliant was going to be a sponsor. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. If you don't know what it is, by the way, out there. It's an interactive learning platform with so many lessons on topics that I always wanted to explore, and I can do them at my own pace, on my schedule, and in a way that keeps me engaged. You can learn by doing on their website or with their mobile apps. And there are thousands of different interactive lessons in STEM subjects all across the platform. Their lessons are engaging and interactive. You can brush up on like algebra or advanced math, multivariable calculus, differential equations, computer science, Python programming. You can even learn about cutting edge stuff like large language models, neural networks, the things that are powering AI today. Large language models really be great now. <laughs> large language models. You can learn large language models. <laughs> <laughs> it's only Gaelic, though. The large language that you can learn is Gaelic. Yeah, ship that. I'm in. We can finally communicate with the Scots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anyway. Wherever you are in your learning journey, there is a brilliant course that will help you get to the next level. Or, you know, just be basic enough to get you an understanding that you can go and work with. Yeah, they're always adding new courses too. They just launched a ton of lessons focused on analyzing data. That's cool. That's really cool. I think the world would be a better place if everyone had to take a stats class. Oh, totally. And if you haven't taken one, here's your chance. You could just go take a statistics class and make Julian so, so happy. I would appreciate that. Try it out. You can try Brilliant for free for 30 days. Just visit brilliant.org slash absurd or click the link in the show notes. Once again, that's brilliant.org slash absurd. When you sign up, you'll get 20% off the annual premium subscription and it supports the show, even just trying it out. So go ahead Check it out. Maybe get sucked into a few lessons. Trace and I are going to be here with the rest of the episode when you get back. If you get back. Oh, I hope you get back. They come back and they know more than us about everything. <laughs> They're just like, these guys are idiots. <laughs> their brains are the size. This huge brain coming out of their cranium. I've absorbed all knowledge. Why do I listen to this podcast of dummies? I have no time for your absurd antics. <laughs> But I would definitely take one on large language models. Cool. A Scottish AI robot that nobody can understand. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> turn on the lights. Sorry. Arm the burglar alarm. It supports the show. It'll be great. Welcome back to That's Absurd. Please elaborate. We covered my question on why some mold is bad, but other mold is good in the first half. And now, Trace... It's your turn. What was your question this week? My question comes from MJ, and he asked, what is the best way to preserve information to survive any and all apocalypses? The notion that the world is going to end by human hands is getting more and more likely, given the recent news about the worsening climate crisis and various other human activities. And that got me thinking, if we were to try to preserve either the technology, the science, the history, or just the cultural symbols, how would we do it? Like, so, I mean, how would we do it? Like, is it even 
possible to preserve something beyond an apocalypse to the next iteration of humans. So we <laughs> listeners, we meet, you know, before the recording, like on, on Monday, and we go over the questions and we pick out ones we like and we narrow it down. And I liked the bread mold one for reasons I stated and then Trace liked this one and I just lost it because I can't imagine like more in terms of like scope and importance <laughs> and scale, like more different questions. One is like, hey, this is kind of funky. Can I eat it? And the other is like, how do we preserve knowledge until the end of time? <laughs> it's excellent it's, it, and that's the kind of range you can expect <laughs> from this from, show from that's absurd please elaborate so uh this is also just a phenomenally good question it know? is it really is so uh trace what have you have you cracked it have you cracked the best way to to look to create an arc of all of human knowledge for eternity and Plus one day. I'm cracking my knuckles. And okay. I think yes. I think the answer I think yes, I've solved it. I've oh. solved I've solved everything. Good job. I've answered the question. Uh I find this really interesting. Uh long time ago when Julian and I were making YouTube videos. I did a video about how CDs um, degrade over time, like a a CD that you burned in high school if you are now graduating from college or have worked for a while. That CD might not work anymore uh, because those things are not built to last. Uh, It's not a good medium for long-term storage. Um, MJ actually went on to to give some clarification where they said paper degrades, CDs can get scratched, carving in stone takes up too much stone, USB drives don't last forever. And I want to say, MJ, you're right. All of that is true. Uh, and so it, there are so many different ways to store stuff. And yet, none of them are good. <laughs> Not, none of them are really good. Yeah. And in library sciences, uh, there is this term. It's an acronym called LOCKS. It's got two S's at the end. Locks. Wait, what's the rest of the letters? Because I'm I'm picturing X's or K's or what's the <laughs> L-O-C-K-S-S. Oh, okay. Any guesses? Any guesses of what locks might stand okay. for? Long <laughs> orthogonal. <laughs> cool keeping super stuff. <laughs> Perfect. You Thank nailed you. it. How did you know that? Thank did you. you I it? definitely felt like it had to have orthogonal <laughs> in it. You want to know what it is? Uh, first it, of all, I want to know what orthogonal is. Oh, involving right <laughs> angles. Okay. Yeah, it's not that. No. You, didn't, you were not even close. Are we sure? Yeah. I feel like right angles are pretty important. Okay, go on. Locks is lots of copies keep stuff safe. <laughs> Wow, I way overshot. <laughs> yeah, you really went like, you went heady, and the library people are like, what's the simplest one? Yeah. Lots of copies. That's was, really what keeps it. It's really in vain with like, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, yeah, lots of copies. And so that's, that's something that I wanted to bring up right at the top. So keep in mind, we need lots of copies of whatever it is that we do in order to make information that can last through any and all apocalypses. I just want to say, MJ, any and all? Like, come on, I have to think of every apocalypse. Yeah, put and your then thinking a scenario. cap on. 
What if what if the space whales from Star Trek finally get their revenge on us? Again, haven't seen that movie. Oh, I come assume, on. You can't make Star Trek references if you didn't see it. that they wanted to kill everybody and we had to hunt the space Moby Dicks. That one is such a good episode. I it's mean, a movie, right? Television. It's a movie. Yeah. But come on. They're basically all episodes. It's just these a long days. episode. It's just an extra. Uh, okay. So I, assume. I, I, liked, I like to break things down. And so uh, we need, one, to decide what information we're preserving. Two, we got to make some copies of it then three we have to decide what to do with those copies and then four uh profit question mark i don't you know like i don't you have to have profit no um four here's what four is four is a future race discovers our knowledge and it and it they use it because we're so much more advanced but then they they use it to get like a modicum of our power but then they learn from our mistakes which is the let's hope so of what halo uh at least like 20 different sci-fi franchises yeah i'm sure there's a star trek episode about this gotta be um so one of my dc roommates i used to live in washington dc and uh they're an archivist for a big dc museum institution that you may have heard of i'm Mm -hmm. not going to say it because she hasn't officially gotten permission to talk to me but i texted her to ask some questions and their job was fascinating because uh they have to preserve things like sculptures and drawings and paintings and jewelry in this institution literally furniture aircraft the muppets you know like they have to preserve everything so i said what is this about like how could we do that um and they said well there's nothing really they even the even this institution that is world renowned is like there's no perfect way to preserve information um but the thing that stood out to me was a story that they told me once about a specific type of art Mm. made on vintage computers so like 8-bit pixel art Okay. It was they they donated the art to them, but in order to access it, you have to have a computer that runs the software it's made on. Oh no. In order to have the computer that runs the software, you have to keep that computer working. And in order to keep the computer working, oh, you no. need parts. And again, under locks, you would need several of those computers with several different copies and over time floppy disks and CDs of course that would be later you know don't last forever so you just have to constantly be checking on it and making sure everything's working and copying and moving things around uh, you know and you have to think about this all the time and that's just to access the art that was existing there and so there are people who dedicate their lives to this work so I want to say to my old roommate and to MJ <laughs> I'm not gonna get this right, but we're okay. gonna try our best. I, I'm just imagining now, like we come up with the solution is like everything is on hard drives. We scatter them all across the solar system, and then you know some apocalypse wipes everything out except for like one. It's Matt Damon survives because always Matt yeah. Damon survives. Yeah, and yep. then he finds the hard drive he's looking for, and then it's like a, a USB Type C connector, and he only has like USB 3.0, and it's oh no, <laughs> and it's like that Twilight episode where the guy's glasses break right when he's about to finally get to all his books that he was trying to read and he can't yeah. actually like no it's no. all it's just what curse you backwards compatibility no yeah yep, yep yeah uh so i love where what you said there about scattering all over the solar system keep that in mind okay all right okay so mj is right though and we sort of touched on this i don't think we can use any digital information at all it's too much work it requires electricity to keep it running we need a physical copy of information so i started researching time capsules um and the first planned 
time capsule uh, was actually in the late 19th century, 1876. New York mm. Magazine publisher Anna Deem uh, created a thing called the Century Safe. I assume Century Capsule because it was 1876, so 100 years after the revolution and then they're going to open it in 1976 at the exactly they opened it in 1976 and inside of it were 19th century things an ink pen uh, (laughs) a photo of president grant a book on temperance you know just normal normal stuff we're gonna have more photos of President <laughs> Grant, though. Yeah, no, they wanted you to remember. If you want to him, talk about, you know, the locks principle. Like we we know what Grant looked like. We have so many like photos of yeah. Grant. It should have been like their dog. I mean, right? Look. Like how many times do you get to preserve like your like a hundred years from now? Make a stranger look at your yep. dog. That's what I. No, would do, I agree. Right. I agree. Like, my dog's not going to be in any history books, which is a travesty. It is. But, like, I would have taken that chance. Everybody's going to know what Grant looks... Yeah. I mean, you're right. You're right. Okay. So that's the first time capsule ever. It was literally... It was a good idea. It was a good idea. I'm getting upset about, like, the missed opportunity, but Uh, it's a good idea. Yes. Okay. I agree. I think the stuff that we choose to put in time capsules, generally speaking, is stupid. I just want to agree with you 100%. (laughs) Nobody's like, hmm, what should I put in there that would be useful to people in the future for recognizing, like, how we live now? And, like, time cap, they put, like, videotape in the Nickelodeon time capsule that's supposed to be opened in, like, 2047 Mm -hmm. or something. And it's like, nobody's going to have a VHS player. Like, what are you thinking? Which is why I was really excited to read about the Crypt of Civilization, which is the time capsule with the coolest name, and it was closed in 1940. Because this guy, he thought it out that first of all great indiana jones movie right? title the crypt of civilization Dial of destiny right the indiana oh. jones and the crypt of oh my word i would see that in a heartbeat uh, it's, yeah really good oh my god okay barbenheimer crypt civilization yeah i would do that triple feature <laughs> the crypt of barbenheimer oh the crypt of i would go to that <laughs> okay so this, uh, the Crypt of Civilization is at Oglethorpe University in Georgia. It was actually a swimming pool uh, that they sealed off and they co- started collecting information in the late, mid to late 30s. Um, so in the 1930s, they're like gathering all this stuff, books, a typewriter, electric sewing machine, a can opener, an early television, uh, pens. Mm. I don't know why they're collecting pens, but they you know have pens. Microfilm. I think in the future, they were like, typewriters will have replaced everything. People will have forgotten what pens are. <laughs> so we'll show them the first typewriter yeah. that they'll be familiar with and then explain, like, and yeah. this is what we did before. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we had to make each letter by hand. In this one, he was really thinking about what, how people in the future were going to use it. And so we've mm-hmm. microfilm with 600,000 pages of books, plus a way to read them, uh, which I'll come back to in a second. They had records with music and voice recordings of notable people, uh, you know, 1930s notable people. So like mm-hmm. Franklin D. Roosevelt or Joseph Stalin oh. or Mussolini. Oh, or wow, that's a Adolf a lot Hitler. Of people you don't, he- don't hear on the same record usually. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Adolf yeah. Hitler, normal, also on there. Normal leaders. Yeah. That in the when 1930s. Up, everybody <laughs> yeah. suffered. It was, I would want to open it and just be like, wow, this is back before, This is back when it was called Twitter, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, they also have, they added Lincoln Logs because it was a popular toy at the time. Mm, um, okay. But then they had a machine with sound. 
that could teach someone English so they could read all the stuff. And I know what you're thinking. If you leave it in there for a long time, how are you going to power that machine? There's a windmill generator included inside. So as long as there's wind, you can wow. power the machine. Wow. They really went. And then I assume a leaf blower in case. Just in we case. Had destroyed the climate <laughs> and wind didn't blow anymore. <laughs> please refer to episode eight of That's Absurd. Please elaborate. Um, <laughs> so. They, they have, a, a, I can keep going. There's a bunch of stuff. There are pictures of them before they locked it closed. And the reason I think that's a big deal is because you and I will not live to see it open and neither will anyone listening to this podcast or using any technology that we can imagine because it was welded shut. The air was pumped out of the room and replaced with inert nitrogen to keep everything totally like set. And it, the doors will be opened in the year 8,113, the 82nd century. And the reason he picked that is because it had been 6,177 years by his guess nice. since the start of the Egyptian calendar. And so this was like the halfway point. So we'll do another 6,177 years. Oh, man, I love it. Right? Actually. Really cool. Uh, I love, I respect the extreme long-term thinking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I almost wonder though, like, you know, you buried it under what used to be a swimming pool and where was it? Georgia? In Georgia, in a university in Georgia. Yeah. Now I have no idea what the future holds for, you know, earth as things move and sea levels (laughs) change and stuff. But like, is there a plan in place of like, if we have to move the swimming pool somewhere? I think it's, so now it's run by the U.S. Bureau of Standards and Measures. So once it had been sealed, the university sort of like donated it. They're like, now it's your problem. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) And all the students who just wanted to go to the pool were like, are you kidding me? God. We gotta wait 6,000 years. Um, So I want to say before we get too far away from it, stuff I liked about this, the thoughtfulness of chemical decay and oxidation and like being all of that. Great. The stuff Mm -hmm. I did not like about this plan was inside the time capsule are like clothing, like typically worn for people in the 1930s and like pictures and like music. Um, But it was the 1930s. And so, and the, without putting too fine a point on it, the creator like really loved 1930s American Southern culture mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. weren't going the way he wanted them to be a going. If you get my drift. Oh. oh no. The subjective nature of selecting things for a time capsule yeah. might be a drawback. Yeah. So he didn't really pick things he didn't like. Uh, so pretty much just white stuff in there, <laughs> like a lot of, a lot of white heteronormative big tub of mayonnaise stuff, um, which, you know, it is what it I is. Assume some brie cheese. Yeah. Oh, gross. Disgusting. Worst thing in there. Um, <laughs> but in terms of the thoughtfulness of it and the way that he thought about who were going to be using it, really loved that. And so mm-hmm. I started to look for more time capsules that had those kind of traits. Uh, and, you know, people do say digital is forever. You know, you can just put it in the cloud and it'll be there. But you have to keep the power on all the time in order to be able to access it. And like computers are useless. Uh, you know, like imagine a computer 100 years from now. So 
when you think of an apocalypse, you have to think of things like you have no power and you have no power and then everything's flooded and you have no power and everything's flooded and it takes a hundred years for the floodwaters to recede. And now we have to figure out what to do with this cloud storage center. Like it's never going to be turned on again. Um, And so they have all of these really high density data systems that we've invented, even things like DNA data storage. But in order to read or write to those, you require these really complicated systems that are very technical. And in order to build those you need the information inside of it (laughs) and that's something that this guy thought about he's like you might not be able to read english in the 82nd century so i'll put Mm -hmm. a system that will teach you with audio like it's a little video projector that you crank how to read english which is just so clever you know a lot of this reminds me of the thought that goes into um when we make space probes that we know are going to leave the solar system mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. possibly be discovered by you know extrasolar life yeah and how we communicate them uh to the these you know creatures like who we are and where we're from and like the solutions usually come to like basing the information on universal things that they would probably be familiar with right yeah like mathematics um, yeah exactly like the the Brie cheese is disgusting. Of like a certain oh. animal. Okay, all right, <laughs> all right. You know, I didn't say anything mean about Star Trek because I haven't seen it. But I feel like you're personally attacking me here. Okay. Okay, I'll calm down. I'll calm down. <laughs> I, people are gonna think Brie's my whole personality. It's not, but I do like Brie. Okay. <laughs> So, yeah, just how, like, we've had to kind of work backwards and say, all right, what could they possibly know? What Mm -hmm. is going to be true for them that is true for us? Yes. And therefore, like, they can decipher eventually the message that we're trying to send. Yes. Like, you know, I I think about, like, the Pioneer space probes, which were the first probes that we launched that we knew were going to leave the solar system. Like, Voyager, we launched them after, but they traveled faster, so Voyager 1 and 2 left first but we know pioneers someday going to also leave and so that was like our first attempted message yeah and we put like a drawing of a human man and a human woman and then like a diagram of the solar system and then an arrow pointing like to earth yeah and it got a lot of criticism because the the critique was the arrow right like is a being from another world going to understand the concept of a line with two other little marks yeah. that that's indicating, like pointing towards something? Yeah. And I thought that was a fascinating thing. My criticism, though, and I was I, I, I think this is funny, is the first chance that we got to communicate with another uh, species from beyond the stars, we sent them nudes and directions to our house. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're going to be like, ew, gross. We're not going there. They're nasty. This is the first thing we do. (laughs) That's funny. Check this out. You like? (laughs) No, you can get some more. Wow. Right. How do I even come back from that? I don't know. Anyway, but that that's it the parallels between long-term storage like this yeah. and communicating with an entirely different civilization because if you think about yes. it over the course of time, right? If enough time passes, yep. might as well be a completely different civilization. That's totally right. And that's exactly where I ended up going with this research. So, MJ, I think I you know, I wanted to put it through its paces and make sure that there weren't other ways to do it and it doesn't seem like the any other way except for and I know he made fun of stone uh for being not the best but it has to be some kind of physical you know stone tablet even the pioneer plaque is like gold anodized aluminum or something so yeah it's it's like something that is mineral 
and that will endure radiation and high temperatures and low temperatures and all sorts of other things. So if you think of paper, that doesn't really work because if it gets wet, it can mold, which, you know, I don't know what kind of mold grows on that paper, but it might make yeah. a toxin. So and then there's or maybe future civilization will think it's cheese and yeah. then try and eat it. And try and scrape yeah. that bit off and eat it. Yeah, and just eat that paper. <laughs> oh no! Oh, this, this tastes this terrible! history of the 20th century, you just ate it. And then there's stone tablets, which we have now for a lot of our own historical understanding, and those take up space, and they're heavy, and they don't necessarily mold, but they can erode and crack. So I found this Austrian guy. Austria, mm-hmm. the one without the kangaroos. That's His name is Martin Kunze. He's a ceramicist, and he wants Ooh. to make physical ceramics ceramic tablets that would protect knowledge for all time and it's called the memory of mankind project and it uses ceramic sheets encased in super thin glass and each sheet is about 20 centimeters square about the size of a bathroom tile uh, but very thin and they said that if if we assume it's like paper thin just to make it easy for us to assume something because i couldn't find anywhere where it told us um then and i actually assume it's thicker than this so this is like best case scenario uh paper thin you get 10 slides in a millimeter and that and each of these 20 centimeter squares can be printed with five million characters and very very small wow so let's say we wanted to use this system to protect our information we can save all of english wikipedia which according to wikipedia is 2.64 times 10 to the 10th characters or about 26.4 billion characters so that would require only 5300 sheets and i round it up for make the math easier um Mm -hmm. and they actually already made pictograms about how to read these sheets similar to the gold anodized plaque that you were just talking about they have ways of saying like okay you use these lenses that they include that are literally just 10 times optical lenses they don't have to be like any crazy equipment you just take a 10x optical lens and put it on top of the sheet and you can read the 5 million characters that are written there. So you could read all of English Wikipedia if you read these 5,300 sheets of these little pieces of ceramics. Um, And at one millimeter for every 10 slides, you're looking at about a half meter in length. So if you had a box that was a half meter long and maybe like a little over 20 centimeters square, you would have all of the information in English Wikipedia and you wow. could and you could carry it around. It's heavy. It's about 120 pounds, 55 kilograms. And if you assume another maybe 10 for the lenses and the box itself, you're looking at about 140 kilograms. So we've got if let's assume then that that is our time capsule. It is literally all of English Wikipedia, which we can debate whether Wikipedia is good or bad. It doesn't matter. It's just I just had to pick something. So get the job done. Yeah, yeah. it got the job done. And so that they say they think would last about a million years uh, in that state. So I think in terms of apocalypses, that gets us through a lot of like you're knocking That's down. You're knocking down basically all climate change, even if all humans are gone, unless the earth is somehow molten. We are pretty good. But now we have to go back. Remember locks. So we have to make copies. copies. And making copies of that might take a little while because you're making these ceramic sheets and putting them in the boxes. Do you have an idea of maybe how many boxes you we we would you would want to make how many would you want how many yeah oh at least two okay so two minimum (laughs) (laughs) minimum two two. i think to be real safe yeah does that satisfy the locks i don't copies i said maybe a thousand i think yeah okay (laughs) sure yeah sure Uh, distributed across earth or the united states great question yes so 
The reason I picked 1,000 is it works out to about one for every 150 square kilometers on the on Earth's land. So like mm. New York would get one box and Kansas would get one box and Florida would get one box and, you know, Michigan would get one and California would get three, uh, you know, and we just scatter them around the world, uh, you know, based on land size. So smaller countries might have to share, but bigger countries would get lots of them. Um, and you they just have to put them somewhere. And I was talking to Virginia, the guest from episode 10 about this, and she was like, put them underneath like a big building. Like if you put them underneath uh, the CN Tower in Toronto or the Space Needle in Seattle, those things might survive because they're like these big hulking buildings. They could put one yeah. by the pyramids, at literally the pyramids in Egypt. They'd still be there, you know, and then you just have to teach kids <laughs> that there is a box with all of the knowledge at the bottom of a building. You're right in that like future somebody would probably find the non-natural looking remains of these buildings. Yeah. Right. You'd probably find first you'd find one box and then be like, uh, what is this? Right. Yeah. But like if anybody found a second box, then they'd go, wait a minute. These are the same. This is suspicious. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, why are there two identical boxes with a bunch of tablets in them? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And lenses. Yeah. And all, don't forget, there's lenses. there's a few lenses. Yeah. And in all each these one. feet, all these pictures of feet. <laughs> all these, all these. Wait, which wiki did we put all in there? these? <laughs> all these pictures of feet. You know, we I actually uh, overestimated the number of plates we need, so we can throw in some. We can throw in some feet. You never. This know. is just a few for posterity. Yeah, just Here is for... what <laughs> President Grant's feet looked like. I don't think it's posterity. Wouldn't it be posterity? Because it's po- for the feet. You know, posterity ah. is more. That'd be a different uh, picture pu- hey podiatry that's pretty good thanks uh so and if you nice. round it up like let's say we did an extra i don't know five you did another 500 boxes uh you can put those in the ocean scattered near land or like something like that mm-hmm. you know just to maximize mm-hmm. the thing is though none of that covers any and all apocalypse <laughs> mj had a really, <laughs> really? wide-reaching question because like what if the the MJ moon did not and... say many apocalypses <laughs> or even most apocalypses what if we launch one to the moon but then there's an that's the sun explodes like that's an apocalypse yep, nope what sorry no what good if, try again what if an asteroid hits the earth and turns it molten all those boxes are gone you know yep, nope, nope. so we gotta launch one on something that goes out of the solar system we gotta launch one you know in onto the moon probably more than one like several we got- <laughs> i'm just imagining showing up at nasa with with your 140 kilo box of, of plates. And they're like, hear me out. Can you find some room on your next launch? Uh, so in here. <laughs> Listen, I've got all the world's feet <laughs> saved here. <laughs> I, have published, I have printed wiki pe- feet painstakingly. <laughs> Onto these tiles, That's and I great. just need you. What's a couple hundred kilograms between friends? Come on, this is for this <sighs> is for poderity. We'd have to send it to other solar systems. I mean, we're just sending unsolicited pics again, but that's, that's you know. No feet like, <laughs> But wow, okay. humanity really doesn't change. We really, no matter what, 82nd century, they're just like, you know, whatever their word for feet is. Anyway, so 
there, there is a program that wants to do this. They're doing it in a slightly different way, uh, but it's called the Billion Year Project, and it was started by the Arch Mission Foundation, and they wanted to create... I literally found this after doing all this research. Uh, they want to, quote, uh, use femtosecond laser writing on nanostructured quartz class to store a backup of Wikipedia with each crystal that they use having a 360 terabyte capacity withstanding 1,000 Celsius with a lifetime of 13.8 billion years which is pretty great. Uh, they did make one. They put it in the glove box of that Tesla that that jerk launched <laughs> into space. But it's not even a copy of Wikipedia on that crystal. It's just Asimov's foundation series. And to make it cost like a million dollars. So see, they launched one at the moon. Viable. No, they launched one at the yeah. moon as well. And it crashed. And they're like, well, maybe they'll be able to find the pieces and put it back together. Uh, so, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So anyway, that's the that's the best we got is it, but they agree that you have to spread it around the solar system just like you intuited Julian. You have to get it out of here, but you also have to spread it around here yeah. and you have to make it something that people can read, that they can read without technology or you have to include apparently a windmill that powers some <laughs> kind of system that allows you to be able to read it. Anyway. It's, it's a, now I'm picturing like a windmill like those child toys where you pull a little cord yeah. and it spins around. And there's one last thing though that uh while i was putting all this together i was like we could just do none of these things because i think the most the the best way we have to store information in the event of any and all apocalypses is to hope that at least one of us lives through it otherwise who cares uh and in which case the best way of storage is lore is right telling each other stories and this right. might seem a little bit woo-woo, but it's like a virtually <laughs> unlimited storage medium that's easy to transport and translate. You never have to teach someone the language that it is involved in. You never have to worry about it degrading, except for the fact that it can't really store specific sets of data because it has no error correction. But it can store imagery, which you can think of as videos, right? You can tell stories that preserve specific imagery. You don't need a player to play it back. You just need a person. Uh, it can store concepts, narrative structures, broad cultural values, ideas. Uh, it can it can store all sorts of stuff just in word of mouth and like lore storytelling. Okay. Which is pretty okay, awesome. I got, I got it. Yeah. You know how we talked about DNA as a potential storage medium? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because DNA is just basically like code with like four instead of base two, it's like base four, right? Yeah. You can, you can really encode a lot of information. Uh, the problem is it like mutates and breaks down and stuff like that. Like what if we we encoded Wiki, Wikifeet, Wikipedia <laughs> in DNA? Okay. And then we inject it into our own genome. Yeah. So we have like a 24th chromosome. That's, that's just... All, well, you probably need to be really, really, really big. Probably need to be like an entire other nucleus. But still, like a second nucleus. Of just that, DNA and, that is history. Yeah. And and then, like, it's preserved as humanity continues. And if any of us escape, we have it within us. This is a sci-fi concept. I'm going to write the spec script tonight. I think you should. This is it's great. I think that's that's a cool idea. I do think. But, I think um, it's a cool idea. Yeah, it's true, though. It's just there's so many impossible to predict and account for uh, and prepare for scenarios. Yeah. But, yeah, I think survival and just 
keeping copies of stuff and being alive to make sure that the copies are okay yeah is kind of it yeah right and i i do want to mention one last thing because i know we're we're running a bit long but it's also egotistical of us to assume we should save everything right let's say Mm -hmm. there's apocalypse and it's a pretty minor one so it only takes a couple hundred years to recover uh and society is back to literally let's say it takes a couple hundred years to recover to start things and we're back in like the early the late 18th like late 20th century right okay so we don't have the internet or anything but we've got cars and we've got like airplanes and you know we've got some good engineering do you think all of the stuff that they rebuilt 200 years from now after a huge like century long apocalyptic break they're gonna build it all the same way and should they like should they want to do exactly what we're doing i don't think so i mean if we caused the apocalypse in some way, I'd go with no. Right. Like <laughs> I'd go with it would be valuable to know what not to do. Yeah. Like we're not the same human. We're not the same humanity that w- sat around arguing in 2019. And that was just a little pandemic, like an apocalypse. You know, mm-hmm. we might never want some of the things that we have now. We might never want to do the same economic systems. You know, we may want not want to have all of our cultural failings. But uh, the nice thing about having all of the information somewhere would be that at least we would know what not to do. And if we pair that with like actual verbal oral histories, uh, then we have like little tales and things that we can carry with us. So if we were going to keep information, I would say we need to keep how to do science, how to make fire, (laughs) the rules and laws of nature that we understand so far, uh, you know, physics, math, astronomy. Yeah, it would be a good good head start but for the recovery I do of civilization. Think, yeah, I think it would be important to have humanities as well, things we've learned about, like, our nature and our, our psychology and how we work would be important, too. But, like, yeah. we don't really need Wikipedia's. Like, we don't need that level of detail necessarily Here's to do stuff. what I always think of. We don't need to know who won every Super Bowl. Right. Any Super Bowl. Ever. Right. I always I laugh when you know because I like sports and hockey and whenever somebody says like it's historic and I'm always like no it's not (laughs) no if if we had to rebuild civilization which would you care more about right like math engineering uh science or a statistic on who scored the most goals in 1985 like it doesn't matter yeah right no in the grand scheme of it does not matter and that's okay like it's totally okay that it doesn't matter you could argue the same about most everything that we that we consider like important literally every Mm -hmm. musical artist stretching back thousands of years doesn't really matter but what would matter is how music was created and how when what you know it meant like those kind of things are important which means you know we would need some humanities as well as not just like physics and math i think it's easy to say physics and math um Mm -hmm. but i don't know information is power and and i remember in 2020 i talked to Teresa Steele. she's a researcher at uc davis and she said the thing that makes us powerful is collective culture it's we are Mm -hmm. able to bring our culture forward not only can we make tools but we can teach other people how to make those tools uh and if we couldn't do that then we would be no better than any other organism on this planet because that's the thing that keeps us powerful which i thought was pretty cool it's what's gotten us where we are right is like taking what has come before and building on it and improving on it in some way right it's it's kind of yeah it's our secret sauce as a species i really feel like 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of That's Absurd Show. Make sure to come and find us anywhere you can get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple, we are everywhere. You can also find us uh, on our website, thatsabsurdshow.com, and there you can ask a question, or you can find a link in the show notes to a quick notion form, just a few lines, ask your question, maybe it'll end up here on the show. We'll reach out to you if we decide to use it. Julian, where can people find you if they want to ask you a question not on the show? Oh, you can find me over on this Threads application. I'm at Hug It Out, H-U-G-G-E-T-O-U-T. Nice. I'm also on Threads, at Trace Dominguez, or basically any social media, at Trace Dominguez, the ones that I'm still using. I don't know. There's a kind of a apocalypse going on in social media, so I'm not really sure what I'm doing on it, but you can find us anywhere there, and of course, please subscribe, share the show with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you in two weeks. Or 8,000 years if you're listening to this in a time capsule. (laughs) (laughs) That's Absurd, Please Elaborate is produced and hosted by me, Trace Dominguez, and Julian Huguet. Our producer-editor is Kyle Sisk, and the executive producer is also me, Trace Dominguez. 